last looks crew. Now, who remembers that amazing comb-over on Christian Bale in American Hustle? What about that perfect mullet on Mike Myers in Wayne's World? Well, those are just two examples of a very long list of amazing heads of hair our guest Catherine Gordon is responsible for. Catherine loves to be involved in a great character design, which is so obvious when you see her resume. Now, before we kick into that, I have some news to share that I find pretty exciting, and maybe you will too, either because you have already been in this position or maybe you would like to be one day. I got a few wonderful emails in my inbox this week. One was being invited to join the Academy and the other to join BAFTA. I feel very fortunate to find myself in this moment and I look forward to learning more about their processes and what it's all about. I'll keep you guys posted. I also received a wonderful email from one of our last looks mentees. Her name's Roxanne. Roxanne is a makeup artist based in LA and she reached out to me with an excellent idea. Roxanne wants to plan a get-together for all the other LA-based hair and makeup mentees, a class of 2023, if you will. I think it's a wonderful idea, and I hope all you LA-based mentees can make it. What a great way to create a sense of community, right? I've been so stoked with all the wonderful messages I've received in regards to our first Last Looks mentoring adventure. And because of all that positive feedback, it looks like we'll have to make it an annual event. Um, If you missed it back in January, let me catch you up. You're like, what the fuck is she talking about? Well, I reached out to some of my past guests on the podcast and asked if they would be interested in taking on a mentee. I ended up with 21 mentors. So then I opened it up to the world of Instagram for hair and makeup artists to apply. All they had to do was create a post, explain why they wanted to be mentored, and tag us. Now, (laughs) I was worried I wouldn't get enough applicants for all the mentors I had lined up, and boy, was I so wrong. We had over 100 applications. I found myself with a lot of work to do, but also feeling like I had to somehow find a home for like every single stray hair and makeup artist that had applied. So to help me feel a little better, I reached back out to our mentors to see if anyone had the bandwidth to be able to take on a second mentee. I mean, just mentoring one person is a massive ask, especially when you're on a job. So luckily for our applicants, quite a few of the mentors agreed. Yay, more homes for the strays. (laughs) So if you were an LA-based mentee, be sure to keep a lookout in your inbox for an email from the wonderful Roxanne. Okay, Last Looks crew, here is your reminder to help me keep this ship sailing. If you love it, share it, rate and review, and subscribe, guys. You know you want to be alerted when a new episode drops. Anyway, my name is Jamie Lee, and this is the Last Looks podcast, a show where I catch up with makeup artists and hairstylists working in the film and television industries around the world. And today, we're chatting with hair designer Catherine Gordon. On with the show. And now, a word from our sponsor. Newsflash. Want to know how those Tinseltown starlets get those gleamy golden gams? How those sultry sirens light up the silver screen with that lit-from-within glow? How they get that gorgeous makeup to last all day and night? Well, gather round, because I've got the buffo news right here that's causing the paparazzi to buzz like bees. It's Melanie Mills Hollywood, of course. It's the secret of the red carpet, and now it's your secret, too. Pro makeup artist Melanie Mills developed these multi-purpose and multicultural products right from the makeup trailer on the set of smash hit Dancing with the Stars. From her amazing face and body radiances, a deliciously special sauce made up of a makeup, moisturizer, and glow all in one that comes in six stunning shades, to her super light, long-lasting setting spray that holds those looks popping and keeps mouths dropping till the cows come home. This fine aerosol mist sets your makeup as easy as one, two, three. For flawless makeup applications, the Melanie Mills Hollywood Brush Collection is the answer to your prayers. These affordable, buttery, soft vegan brushes are just what you need to sculpt, shape, highlight, and contour. What 
whatever the party calls for, Melanie Mills Hollywood has you covered. And remember that all these gorgeous, cruelty-free vegan products are tested on celebrities, never on animals. MelanieMillsHollywood.com And now, our feature presentation. Pictures up. Last looks. Rolling. And action. Welcome to the Last Looks podcast, Catherine. Thank you. (laughs) Okay, so this is where our story begins. I want you to finish this sentence for me, okay? Okay. Once upon a time, there was a little girl named Catherine, and when she grew up, she wanted to be... I wanted to be a motion picture hairstylist. And at the time, I thought I was going to be an archaeologist. Okay, so these are two very different things. <laughs> Let's talk about the archaeologist first. Where where did that idea come from? I am from High Park in Chicago originally, mm-hmm. and it's where the University of Chicago is, and I have been very fortunate. I grew up in a neighborhood filled with museums. One of the museums that's on the University of Chicago campus is the Oriental Museum. And I was obsessed with my father taking me to see the mummies. And I really wanted to be an archaeologist. That's very cool. So how and then how did you know you wanted to do hair for film? Well, at the same time, like as you get older, I kind of was acting since I was Not professionally by any means, but my family are very creative people, what they did for a living. And they already had my brother and sister and I, from the time of two years old, doing acting, singing and dancing. Oh, wow. In Chicago. And then with community theater, I did it my whole life. And one day when I was now in high school, I missed the auditions because I was on an archaeological dig. (laughs) <laughs> oh, wow. So you actually went and did. Okay. That's amazing. Yes. I, it was the second time I went like at 16 in Southern Illinois mm-hmm. with the Northwestern University, you know, like for summer school kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And then I went again in my senior year of high school thinking, okay, let me really see if this is what I want to do. Cause I was getting ready to go. Am I going to college or what am I doing? And what yeah. are my interests? You know, that kind of thing. So yeah. I, I came back from that I missed the auditions and we were doing this play called Our Town. And they said, well, it's too late now. You can't audition for a part, but we need a hair and makeup artist. And I'm like, well, I don't know how to do that. Mm. I mean, how am I going to do that? We bought the Richard Corson book. And if you know the play Our Town, it takes place in Maine and everybody's skin is really crackly. And on Sundays, we started, me and another guy, we started teaching a class on how to do makeup. And we bought the book and we just started doing it. And within a short time period, from doing this class that we knew nothing and now we're teaching it because all, <laughs> do you know what I mean? We're teaching it to all the other thespians because yeah. everyone has to do their own hair and makeup because right. it's community theater. We built the sets. We did children's theater around Chicago all through high school. We did two plays a year. It was my whole life was mm. the theater. So before I knew it, I came back to my family and they said to me, I told them, what, I go, this is what I want to do for a living. This is really, this is great. Now I like this better than acting. Yeah. And how do I do that? And my family's in the hair business and I never wanted to be a hairdresser, but they convinced me because they don't do theatrical hair. They do print. They own salons in Chicago. They were into coiffure members. And that is a group that sets the styles for the industry. And they said, okay, well, in our world, if you do hair and makeup, you get paid more and you have to go to beauty school. And I was like, but no, I don't want to do that. But before I knew it, I was in beauty school. Yeah. And because, you know, when you're young, you don't really know how to navigate yourself Mm -hmm. and your family will push you into something to help you so that you understand that, you know. So before I was out of high school, I was already in beauty school and everything happened really fast and they own salons. So once I was out of beauty school, I was already working in the shop. And even before I was a hairdresser, I was a Saturday. I was like the receptionist and the shampoo girl because right. they own salons and you need a job on Saturday. Yeah. So you'd been around it already. Did we, did you go to them saying that you wanted to do makeup and hair or you knew that you wanted to separate it and just do the hair side? No, I really wanted to be a makeup artist. I really was fascinated by all the monsters, but also at the same time, Right when all this was happening, there's a school in Chicago called the Goodman School. Mm. And Goodman is a very well-known theater company in Chicago. Yeah. And the woman who ran the hair and makeup department, I contacted her. And she's basically teaching actors how to do theatrical makeup, right? Yeah. 
And so I met with her privately while all this was happening. So while I was in school and I was just a beginner as an assistant in the shop, I was already doing theatrical hair in the small theaters in Chicago, like the cuts and, you know, the not really wigs. And I was starting to learn about wigs and I didn't really understand it at the time. Mm. So I spent a good three, four years doing all the theater companies in Chicago. And then I finally found a place to learn about wigs. And I, I left and went to San Francisco Opera and went back to school All right, to be a wig maker. Oh, wow. And they have a hair and makeup wig making program. It took like two years to find it because mm. in the United States, it's not like Europe. And you don't really understand how you can really learn this end of the business. Like I knew I was going to do this end of the business, but I didn't understand how you get there. Yeah, it seems to be weirdly hidden behind some type of curtain. <laughs> I think it's opening up more now, definitely. But I imagine back then it was kind of like the amount of research and steps you would have had to take to find what you, what to even do. Yes, yes. And and even after I went, had to apply for school at San Francisco Opera, so I went and I met them and talk about their program. Because by this time, I was already a working gal by four years. And I was like, okay, what am I getting myself into? Yeah. And the only other place that you could go at the time was the University, I think of Cincinnati. And they actually have a four-year program. The problem is with their school is that you really don't want to be a wig maker until you become a hairdresser. And you really want to be an advanced hairdresser so that you understand how hair grows. Mm -hmm. Because otherwise... As you know, because you do hair, it's not just making like even the facial hair, it's understanding how it's put in there and what your final, what, what is your final look going to be before you get that wig made? Yeah. And the best wig makers, when people ask me that, or I say to me, the best wig makers are the ones that are already hairdressers and then they go into it. Instead of that, well, sometimes it doesn't even happen the other way around. They just simply make wigs and don't really know how. Yeah, that's a problem. Yes. Yeah. That's so cool that you, so how long were you doing the wig making for? Well, you, the, the school at the time was a full-time program of about nine months and you had to build like over a hundred wigs. Oh, far out. <laughs> and while you were in school, the very first day we started with facial hair and yeah. they, they started you with like, okay, we're going to teach you how to make a sideburn. Mm-hmm. And now we're going to teach you how to make a mustache. You, and we're going to teach you how to make patterns. And, you know, they started you from scratch. Mm. But why we're in school, because we actually were in the opera house where the school is only 12 of us. Yeah. And very quickly within the first two weeks, it was 10 of us. Mm. And we were at nighttime, we were helping the seniors put wigs on the chorus. So we were already starting to learn how, like how you put wigs on and learning. And we're watching also the staff that actually works there and they're dressing the wigs. Mm. So you're learning all this at the same time, but all day long, we are making pieces. And then at nighttime, as we got a little more proficient at the whole thing, there were other companies. Back then it was Judy and Paul in San Francisco, which was a very, they ran like quite a number of opera companies around the United States. And they would hire us to like front wigs and do small pieces on it as we were learning to, you know, to make a little extra money. So we were up all night long making pieces 24 hours a day. It was besides finishing your schoolwork and besides doing shows at night, we're working 24 hours a day. It was amazing. So you're just all things hair and wigs just all the time. Yeah. And then after that, after the school, which was like a year, they started to place us with different opera companies around the whole country, like maybe Alaska or uh, Santa Fe at the time was massive. Mm. And I ended up, I didn't really know where to go. And I was like, I, I was only 21. So I was really still in that quandary going, okay, is this what I'm going to do? How do I go to my next step? Yeah. And I ended up getting a job at what they call Western Opera, which was outside of the Met. It's the a young touring company. I did hair, makeup, and I built the show. So, and then I took it on the road. So I had like 15 singers. Hmm. I could design anything I wanted. So we did Madame Butterfly one year, and then I did Rigoletto the next year. And I could design anything I wanted. And I did the makeup, I did the hair, and we did bus and truck tours across the United States. Oh, wow. That's awesome. Because I was going to say, like, while you're um, in school learning the wig making, did you still have your eye on your original idea of just like, I want to do this for film? You know, at the time, I was so young. 
I just didn't understand the next process. Yeah. And you knew you wanted to be in that world and you were working it out. Yeah. I couldn't figure out, like, even though my family is very well connected in the hair business, they have no connections whatsoever in what we do for a living. There was nobody to ask. And also when you ask people who were in the business, if you even got a chance to talk to them, they would not tell you anything. They kept it a huge secret. (laughs) And so it was really, it was very, it was a challenging time to figure out the next step. And why I was at San Francisco in between these, in between this job of traveling, I also worked for another company in San Francisco that did all these no collar plates. But because I had already worked in the shop, I was a Cracker Jack hair cutter. So they wanted all these 1930s haircuts. At that point, even though I'm learning still period hair, mm. I could look at a picture and I could cut anything. And yeah. I'd just go over there and just do like right before they'd ever show. It, it was uh, called Berkeley Rep. And they still do no, they're still around and they still do all 1930s no collar plays. I just go cut all the guy's hair and there's like quite a number of operas and you could always find work. That's awesome. So traveling around the States for a couple of years doing that. Yes. Wow. And then, and then one day I, when the production was over, I said, oh my God, I had already been working in the shop and I was like, okay, I'm 22 years old. Mm. There's no way I can make a living doing this for a living because it's barely any pay. Yeah. I, I'm moving. I'm moving to New York. And I packed up my stuff. I stopped in Chicago. On one of the tours, I had already gone. <laughs> I, I was young. I already had talked to the union in New York. Oh, yeah. and, they, and I wasn't union there. And I said, hi, I'm moving here. And here's this is what I want to do. And how do I do that? Mm-hmm. And they said, well, we can't hire you because you're not in the union. So I said, okay, but I'll be back. And then I put my name on the registry once I actually officially moved there. And in between the snow, when no one could go to work, they would call me and I would go do that job. The union members couldn't get in from New Jersey or wherever they were coming from, and they would send me out. That's how I did it. And then I literally knocked on staged, I literally knocked on the Broadway show doors and I would hand them the resume. And at the time it was not union and I didn't even know what to do. So I physically just would go knock on the doors, hand my resume. And out of 25 resumes at the time, one person answered the resume. That's all it takes. And his name is John Qualia. And then John hired me as a swing on Broadway. What does that mean? A swing means that like, if you took the night off, you'd have to have someone cover for you and they would teach you the show and then you could go cover for them for that night. Okay. So the thing that was great about John is that even though John called me back, he still didn't offer me a job. And then a friend of mine from the theater company in Chicago, she became a Broadway singer. She was in Hair and Jesus Christ Superstar. And she called her stage managers and said, don't you know anyone in New York that's in hair and makeup? And they said, yeah, we know one person. Mm. And that person turned out to be John. Yeah. It was just a crazy coincidence. So I became a swing. And then he called NBC and said, I have the perfect job for you. Mm-hmm. And I started on the Today Show and they couldn't get a union member to wake up at four o'clock in the morning. And that was how I got in. So because you were willing to get up early, that was you were in. That's awesome. <laughs> exactly. I mean, I was there. I mean, I, I worked at NBC for like 10 years. Wow. Getting up at 4 a.m. for 10 years. Well, it was like seven <laughs> years on the Today Show. But the Today Show was amazing because, you know, life is funny. And sometimes you walk into a room mm. and you just fit. You know what I mean? It's just funny how it is. And we all have that experience. And I was really lucky. Like that show had been going on for 40 years and they ended up, they never took anyone before, but they took me around the world. They, I mean, like I went everywhere from the Orient Express to China. I mean, like you name it, I went with the show because they did the show around the world at different times, a couple times a year. And they Mm. never took anyone else and they took me with them. That's awesome. I mean, I I was like, this is like the world's best job. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Oh, my gosh. So what kind of hours would you be doing on that? Well, when you work at NBC at the time Mm. and you started on the Today Show, right, you had to be up at four in the morning. My original call time was like five o'clock in the morning. The show was done by nine. But then after that, like back in the day, Gene Shalit, who's no longer on the show, but he would do all these movie interviews and I'd go with him. And they were almost like how we think about EPK, 
Yeah. But more so, like, you know, in film, it's fast, but in something for a TV show, it's not, it's ours. And mm-hmm. we would go to all the hotels and interview all the actors and writers, and they do much, much more segments talking about movies. And I did that for a while. And then afterwards, sometimes I'd go on a rare occasion, go do the Letterman show. But then you're exhausted because when you're on that schedule of really early, you, you have to stay there. You can't. Yeah. You can't be working at seven o'clock at night. It's too hard. Yeah, absolutely. So what moved you away from from that? Well, at the same time, on Saturdays, I did SNL. Oh, wow. So right away, once I was at NBC, pretty much from almost my first day, they said, hey, can you go do SNL? And I was like, sure. God, you're getting the full New York experience, aren't you? And because it's all it's all <laughs> it's all the same. It's all at 30 Rock. So yeah. and then they would assign you. Um, it's kind of like you're working at a pit stop and mm. the hair, makeup and wardrobe on one actor. And so the very first year, it's just dumb luck who they assigned me. The very first year I was assigned Billy Crystal. Mm-hmm. And that is more like life. That's like what I already knew, like live theater, like quick changes from the theater. Yeah. And you know, you rehearse all day long, you're switching it out. Then you, they go up, they break for dinner. After they break for dinner, you're looking at a list of what you already did and they start to underdress. So you might be doing a ball cap, then you're going to do a wig and they never turn around. So like, it was hilarious. What happens is that they're going to do politicians and you get to the point where you can look on the page really fast and look at the actor and you see how quickly you can turn them into that character. Yeah. The wigs are, I wasn't in charge of the department. But the wigs are already done, but the rest of it is not done. And you're doing it right on the spot. So like they would cut out like styrofoam cups and stick it behind people's ears because no one ever turns around. Then you're doing ball caps and you switch them off and on really fast. All the buttons are Velcroed. It's, do you know what I mean? Mm. And you're doing quick changes. Like a minute quick change is a long time. Yeah. And you're, you just get, you get really fast at it. You get really fast at changing people. It's a really great experience. So the first year was Billy. And then my second year, they gave me, I did guest hosts every week. Oh, cool. And then finally after that, I sort of felt like, because it's kind of an honor to do guest hosts, because Billy was only on the show for one year, one year, and mm. he was full out, like he, it was full out prosthetics, it was full out wigs. He did a lot of gag work, which was great for me, because I, yeah. I had never done that before, so it was fantastic. And then the second year, they assigned me the guest host, and after doing guest hosts, which I liked... I finally said to them, you know, I kind of feel like a man with no country. Would you mind giving me an actor back? Mm. And so Dana Carvey came in and Dana, oh my God, that was great. I did Dana for <laughs> seven years. Oh, and wow. Then, and then he opened the show. It was unheard of because he played Bush and Bush mm. had two. He was president for eight years and mm. Dana opened the show being Bush every single week. And we did all kinds of crazy characters like church lady and you know, it was one week after the other. And I worked with a makeup artist by the name who's no longer with us, who I loved, Michael Thomas. Mm-hmm. He was a great teammate. And he would let me do a little bit more than you're supposed to, which is like, let me do the other side of the prosthetic. And you know what I mean? The ball cap. Take the help if you can get it. <laughs> right. Like, I'd be like, I can't just do the hair stuff. I'm like, can I help you do that? And he'd be like, sure. And you know what I mean? Because you're working with somebody. So you're just getting... Yeah. You know, because I would just get like, I, I'm like capable of doing more, even though yeah. you're not really supposed to in the union, whatever. But, you know, we're, we're moving fast. It was fine. Yeah. And so Michael and I teamed with Dana for seven years and then sitting literally less than one inch away because the rooms are really small mm. was Mike Myers. Mm. And I he didn't have anybody. And he actually his characters never did any kind of like it was just his own hair, which he has right. a lot. He has a ton of. Yeah. And so. I started to do his hair privately, like give him haircuts and that. And then they asked me to move on to film. So I went and did Wayne's, the Wayne's Worlds one and two. Yeah. And you then, say that like I have, might not have heard of them. <laughs> well, that's because I actually, I actually say now, yes, I'm that old. I did Wayne's World one and two. <laughs> I mean, oh, fucking yeah. amazing movies. <laughs> and, um, and then, I, and then I got the opportunity to design Austin Powers, the first one. That's very cool. And so that was like, that was like, because I, I had done so much work with Mike. We also, mm. in between, after these couple of movies, I also did this other movie with Mike called, um, wait, Soy Murder and Axe Murder. Oh, and, yeah, I know. I right? Know that one. That, yeah. <laughs> so I did like that show. 
And then afterwards, we so I was already like, believe it or not, the film work with Mike was a very small part of our relationship because mm -hmm. I saw them on the weekends, the whole family. I did their hair. It's like it was just a really small part of the whole many years that I so when I started doing Austin, that design work was already six months well into it. And makeup wasn't even hired yet. Right. And um, because I was in so much in touch with them. And that was a lot of fun. And we slowly put that together ourselves. And then I had worked with some other makeup artists that we did. So I married an ex-murderer. And that was Matthew Mungle. And oh, cool. I suggested to Mike, hey, why don't we use Matthew again? And then Matthew sent John. They're a couple, and John's also a really great makeup artist. And mm -hmm. so then it became John and me doing Austin Powers. But by that time, because it got to be, we're like, okay, now we need teeth, and now we need this. And I was like, okay, we need a makeup artist now. You know, like, I don't build teeth. Yeah. But as far as the look is concerned and decision-making, that was done six months prior. And I even had an opportunity to build him a wig. You know, mm. let me get something going for you, and then now go practice. Because it was such a physical character way before we started that show. Yeah, I mean, that's awesome that he was able to work with you like that. Like it would have been so helpful for him. Yeah, it was great. And we had opportunities like, you know, just because I'm doing their hair, so we talked about things a lot. Do you know what I mean? Mm. About the character and, you know, and I came up with like, I, I had boards and boards and boards of ideas of how we slowly came up with the hair character for it and then getting his head shaved for Dr. Evil. It was not a ball cap because... We had already so much experience in television with prosthetics mm. that mm. for film and keeping all that going and the physical aspect of that character, it was just too much. Like it was never going to hold up. Even on SNL, those ball caps, we were putting them on and taking them off so fast. You're, you couldn't even blink an eye. You were moving at such a speed. Yeah. But even if he's having to play the two characters within one day, it's just like, oh, taking off a bald cap to then put on a wig or vice versa would have been a nightmare. So yeah. Yay for shaving his head. <laughs> but I have to say it made it really hard because the way that it actually not really learned on that one, because the other wig was built with no hair. You know what I mean? He was bald underneath that. And then we wigged him. So you had, right. it was all a plan. And Mike has a ton of hair. Like you have to golf quad it. It's just, he's got tons of hair. So to get that mm -hmm. under a wig, but also to keep something on with no hair underneath all the time, they've come up with more things than they used to even back then. And yeah. now it's not quite as hard. But back mm. then it was much harder because people sweat and, you know, it's just, yeah. yeah. I was about to say, if he's a sweater, then that's, uh, yeah, <laughs> issues. Yeah, and just a physical comedy. That's a really physical show for the actor. Yeah. So, oh my God. Yeah, it was challenging. That's so cool. So, were you still doing SNL while you were doing the films? Like the, the films, because SNL has like a seasonal break, right? Yes. Right. We would come to LA in the summer and then we'd go back to New York. By the time we did Austin Powers, it was just a fluke that we all moved here. It was just a weird fluke. And it was all at the same time. It wasn't like a planned thing. All right. How has that changed? Uh, well, I had already came here, you know, for a couple of the movies. Yeah. And then we'd go back to New York. And then when I came here, um, I was already like a personal and already experienced. But now I wanted to learn how to be a department head. Mm -hmm. So in between these jobs, I started to day check. Oh, cool. And I very quickly met the old timers. And without even knowing, it would just be like me Carolyn Elias and Hazel Catmull mm -hmm. doing like 1960s. I still felt like no matter how much I did, I still felt like I wanted to learn more period stuff. And I wanted to understand things in a different way than just being a personal because it's such a different job. Yeah. And running a department and how do they work? There's so much to work out. And how do you work that out mm. in creative decisions, knowing how to do breakdowns? Anyway, the old timers took me on immediately. And yeah. How was I to know that two weeks later after day checking, Hazel would say to me, hey, do you want to be my key? And mm. I was like, sure. And then that was the end of that. It was the beginning of our relationship. That's awesome. Yeah. So then you were able to follow and learn and, and be taken under her wing to be able to understand department heating a bit more. Yes. I knew it in the hair, but I didn't really understand how like there's so much to be worked out or even mm. like other creative decisions and how they get worked out. And I mm. used to say to her, 
I really wish I could be a fly on that wall in that meeting so I understood this better. Yeah. And slowly I did start to understand it better. I think that's just it really, isn't it? It's like there's no, I don't know, there's no like school that you go to to learn that or it's not all written down in a book anywhere. And even if it was, every production is different. So it just does come with experience and over time, doesn't it? Yes. And sometimes I think it doesn't matter if you're a personal or department head, we're asked Mm -hmm. to do things by, let's say, the producer or the director. And we know in our skill set that that can't be done. I can might be Mm. done in post, but you can't do it physically. And then how you explain that. And sometimes you have to actually show them why it can't be done. Even though Mm. today you can do so many more things, but then it might move into post. And back then I just didn't understand that process. And I asked her 20 million questions and slowly, like, how did you work that out? And something really simple, like, let's say, Let's say the director or somebody or even the actor says, hey, listen, I want to, my hair is dark brown and I want to bleach up my hair for this character. And that character is running over four months. And, and you say, oh, okay. And you know, as a professional hairdresser, that if you, within a very short time period, you are going to have to do a touch up. Mm. And if you keep overlapping that bleach, how are you going to get through three or four months of shooting without that hair breaking off? I don't care who does Mm. it. And how do you explain that, even if you're trying to explain it, you know, and that you go, okay, now maybe we shouldn't do that. Or let's leave a root there because then, Mm. then when we go touch it up, we can paint the root back in and you don't have to have it done quite as often. Yeah. It gives you some wiggle room, doesn't it? Yeah. Yes. Or maybe this is not a good idea to do when you're here and maybe we should build you a wig. Mm-hmm. And let's see what that, that finishing look's going to look like because not everything can be wigged. And that's the other thing people don't really understand, especially on a guy. Not everything can really be wigged. Yeah. Yeah. The, oh, yeah. Just even you bringing up the bleaching. <laughs> just like, that's what I mean. Just, like, it's just like even the time needed yeah. to be able to do that, especially if, you've, if it's your number one and they're in like almost every scene. It's just like, what, are they going to be getting their roots touched up in the weekends? Like, they're not going to want that. <laughs> well, that, that's just it. And to explain all that, something that simple, and that happens even today. It's not like, you know, it, yeah, it happened years ago. And then I would say to Hazel, okay, well, how did you work that out with the producers? That's the part I didn't get. Like, how did you explain that? How do you, how did you get that from not being on his own head to a wig? And, yeah. and that was the part I didn't get. Of course, now, I, you know, I've been departmenting for so many years now. And that's working pretty much out everything that we do in film that you have to really understand it. And besides jumping characters or jumping time periods or, you know, and coming in on budget and there's a lot to know. Yeah. I think too, that having your experience of working in the salon and understanding a consultation yes, and knowing how to communicate that way, I think it comes in so handy when you are speaking to producers who maybe just really don't even know the first thing about hair or trying to grasp what a director is wanting when maybe they're not so good with their words. (laughs) That, that whole consultation way of communicating really comes in handy because I think you just, you know, when you're in the salon, you're constantly trying to understand what someone's wanting and get that, what the vision is in their head into yours so you're on the same page so you can give them what they're wanting. So, yeah, I think that experience is so valuable. I do think that's really important, but even in the salon, like sometimes you pick a haircut, right, and you just mm. go, okay, that style is not going to look good on you. But instead of saying that, you approach it in a different kind of way. Or yeah. maybe their texture of hair going, okay, what are you willing to do to finish the hats? Yeah. Because unless you do this, this, and this to get it finished, this is going to be really hard for you to do because your hair won't do it. Yeah. You know? And same thing when you're saying the producer, well, that's actually going to take an hour and a half to do every morning. So do we want to do it that way? Or maybe we want to try something different? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And and it just takes experience of working that out and, and it just takes time. Yeah, that's so true. And lucky enough that you were working under somebody who was willing to share their knowledge with you and answer your questions. Because I do hear more often than I would like that people do have trouble getting any information from yes. those that they're working under, which is a shame because why would you not want to share 
the knowledge that you have to simply strengthen the team that you have so everyone can do great work. So that's awesome that you found someone like that. Yeah, Hazel was just really, she was a theatrical hairstylist, right? And Mm. not only could I watch her work, and I watch other people's work from a distance to old timers. And I'd be like, wow, that work looks amazing. And I, mm-hmm. I just watch from a distance because they wouldn't show you to go, wow, that looks so real. But then I came with skills that you didn't really have. And you can't get unless you do it from the beginning, which is I would teach her my skills. Like, let's say learning how to blow dry, something that everyone thinks, oh, this is so easy. Well, in a salon, mm-hmm. it's a full year to learn how to finish people. And finishing them to be good with the haircut. And I would show her. So sometimes we double team. And if something wasn't right, I never said anything in front of the actor. I would just work around somebody. And we were double teaming. And then we would fix it. And then she'd fix mine. I'd fix hers. And then it was great. And slowly she learned how to round brush. And it was done in a way that she felt confident. But to be really fast, you've got to go to the salon to learn how to do it. That's the thing people don't realize. You really have to have your time in every place to feel confident. Yeah, it's the repetition. It's the different heads of hair coming through time and over and over and over. Yes. And the same with the wigs. I mean, one time Mm. it's not going to show you how to do it. Mm -mm. It's every wig, no matter what, it's got its very own life. That's how I look at it. Yeah. I just finished working with one that I I, I thought I could conquer it and I still hate it. That relationship was not, I had two and one of them I just couldn't. I was just like, oh, I hate this wig. Um, and the other one, I was just like, oh, no, we, we're getting on. It's okay. And they were meant to be the same, but they just were not. Oh, and yeah. <laughs> it's just so funny, that relationship. I was just like, I hate that fucking wig. Oh, no, it's so <laughs> it's so true. And you know what's really weird is that the second one is never as good as the first one. Never. And they, it's the weirdest thing. You know, sometimes like you can have the second one there. And if you don't start using it right away, it's like all the hair has a memory. That's what I tell people. All hair has a memory. Mm. Some hair has a better memory than others. And even if they use the same hair and you ask the wig maker, what did you change the hair? Or is it a different texture of hair? And that wig might not ever do the same thing as the first wig. Even if it's exactly the same, yeah. it's the craziest thing. I know. I wonder if breaking them in at exactly the same time would help with that I don't know because it is yeah I don't, yeah I totally understand what you're saying funny thing is that this time it was the first wig that I hated and the second one I liked but I couldn't even tell you why yeah no I, I've been there <laughs> done that you know or sometimes I just like go okay I've broken it in I've done it every which way I've baked them I've cooked them I've you know and <laughs> and the hair will, still won't stay and no, it, I think it just didn't like me. It was just like, no, even though I'd had a chat with it, like, come on, we're going to get this together. And I got it to a place that I was just like, okay, I can deal with it. <laughs> but I still was just like, I can't wait to wrap you and put you in a bag. Then you can go away. <laughs> but, you know, us crazy hair people with our, um, our ways. <laughs> it, yes. And there's kind of no shortcut really like with prepping those wigs. Like I, I once watched mm. this one woman, Jennifer up in, she was from Canada and we were doing a movie in Houston and she actually had the oven. She had 10 wigs to do on Shirley McLean for this movie. And I had my own five on my own actors and someone else had their mm. own five. We had so many wigs going on that movie. And I watched her like bake them and cook them and stick them in that thing. And she spent like, I would say about 10 days over and over and over getting that hair to start to get some sort of memory to them so that she knew exactly how she was going to get those things dressed because Mm. she had so many to do. And that was a really good learning curve. I would just go stand there and watch her. And she never, she never said no. And I just kind of watched people because no matter how much you learn, you know, no matter how much you've already learned, there's always something more to learn. Absolutely. I mean, what is something you think that you have learned recently that was pretty exciting? I think to answer that question is that no matter how much experience I have, there is always something that mm. come up in my next job that I might have never done before. Yeah. Even though I, I've done so many different things and crazy stuff with air. But something yeah. always comes up and I go, okay, let me go back to the drawing board and think about that. Yeah. You've got to do your troubleshooting and really think it through because it's, yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. yeah. So, I mean, you do have such an impressive filmography, like your resume, you look on your IMDb and it's just like, holy shit, 
<laughs> so nice. It's so amazing. I think um, as we're talking about Wayne's World, to traffic, Ocean's Eleven, Walk the Line, Transformers, like Hot Tub Time Machine, hello. <laughs> <laughs> Foxcatcher, like American Hustle, like so many incredible films. When you think about them all, are there any that are kind of standout favorites for you? And it could be for any reason. Okay. One of my favorite, I have a, like, I think the top three, mm. but for different reasons. One of my favorite was 310 to Yuma. Yeah. It was, it, I never had done a cowboy movie before. Mm. And I said to my team, okay, no matter what, I don't know if you know who Miss Kitty is from Gunsmoke, but I was like, no matter what, we don't want any girls looking like Miss Kitty from Gunsmoke, which is a TV show where everybody actually looked like 1960, but it should have been 18 something. Right, right. And, and it was really <laughs> stiff hair. And I'm like, no one's going to look like that on this show. And then- yeah. The other thing I loved about, so we wigged the first 17 guys every morning and that Mm -hmm. we met all these stunt guys on that show became actors because they were specialists for horses and we changed everybody. And you know how it is. Like people come in and we make them, when you're doing a show like that, I honestly, guys get cuter and cuter because we dirty them up. We give them longer hair. We give them facial hair. And before you know it, that one guy who didn't look so cute all of a sudden looks like a stud muffin because we make them look like that. Yeah, yeah. Is there something about the the breakdown of yeah? yeah. I don't so know. we so so we prepped and we colored all these wigs to get them to you know some we use we use their own fronts some we didn't. I got all these lace wigs. We cut and colored a million of them, and from that show, that was just the beginning of the day. But one of the things I loved about that show, oh my god, it was so great, is that I'm a huge huge fan since the time I was a little girl of John Steinbeck. And Mm -hmm. I dreamt about doing Cannery Row. Like I knew I was never going to get, and I'm not from California. So I'd read those books and he always described the golden hills of California. And in that movie is a scene where we're going to make a Chinese camp because that is what Cannery Row is about. It's all part Mm -hmm. of like the turn of the century when the Chinese people came over and they were the workers and they made the railroads. And I said, oh my God, this is my Cannery Row. This is my like dream. We're going to do one scene. Yeah. So we got to do this one scene and the set dressing was just how I imagined it. It was so spectacular. And they made it look like a Chinese mining camp. And we took all these people and I taught all my, my team. We got all these Godiva wigs because we had to turn them into, uh, you know, like 1910 Chinese people coming, working in the mining camp. And we did different lengths and we made them into cues and all different kinds of things. And we spent a month doing that. We thinned them all out. Mm-hmm. I showed them how to do everything. And we shot that scene. And so when you see like Christian Bale and Russell Crowe, running with the horses and a couple of other actors running through the tunnel and into the Chinese mm. camp. I was like, and we dirtied up all these things, which is actually not that easy to do on Godiva wigs because they're synthetic and it's really hard to get that whole dirt. Anything to stick. Yeah, it's really hard. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God. So that, I know that might sound really weird, but I really, it was like my time I got to do my version of John Steinbeck. I think that's awesome. There's something to be said for the films that we do too that are not traditionally pretty or clean or you know the the breakdown and the the lived in and the dirt and stuff I I don't know I love it too I love it it was so great and also all day long we had to have someone in the trailer on that show because they wouldn't even tell us and they would send somebody back and we were switching their wigs out all day long all of a sudden I'd be on set I'd be like wait a minute he didn't have that wig on before and we were changing people out all day long so we we rotated on that so I someone always had to be in the trailer so if they change their clothes, we change their wigs. Oh, because they were recycling people. Yes, yes, all, oh, right. all day, all day long. And it was just... Constant rotation. Yeah, obviously it's just, you know, it was like, okay, no problem, I get it. You know, without even telling, you know how it is, they don't tell you, they don't yeah. do it over the walkie. It's never that organized. <laughs> yeah, no, of course not. And what are your other two? Well, I loved Walk the Line. That was a really hard movie to do. We mm. had 37 actors in the trailer, principal actors. We had 500 on set. And we had 50 people in the background getting cut all day long, every day for that whole movie. And those day players, not one person was cast with the right hair color, honestly. And I know as a hairdresser, you would understand what I mean. But like, let's say someone had that brown hair, right? Mm. We had 87 actors that were not ever cast. And you are now making a serious salon. 
a trailer for just coloring hair. And it was not easy hair color. It was like, you got to fill it. You got to put the next color on it. Just that alone for that number of actors. And then the continuity of that is massive. And also all the different periods that we jumped in that movie for all the different characters. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really proud of that work. I really am so proud of that work. It sounds like a lot. And it, oh my God, every time someone's cast and they've got a completely different hair color, you must've just been like, really? I got so used to it by that time, but we, we literally had to make one trailer, just the color trailer. And then some of those colors weren't coming out and I'd be like, okay, send them back and use this formula and they'll be perfect. And mm. I started just... I'd look and go, no, not right. Okay, this, this go, I just make the formula myself and go, okay, go do that and don't do anything else, you know, so that you get your team yeah. to listen to you. <laughs> Was it one of those things that it's just like, uh, uh, did you have certain characters that you would just let it slide? Cause you're like, nobody, I mean, a very small percentage of the world knows what this person looks like or well through your research you kind of tried to stay true to you, anyone you could I I had already worked with uh, James Mangold and Kathy Conrad James Mangold was a director I did my mm -hmm. first movie with them was Girl Interrupted and I right. I did 310 to humor with them this was their movie and they did know and no you had to do it you had to do it yeah. and and also because we really were taking like all that, all those people are real people. And when, do, when you're doing mm. real people, you might not be doing prosthetics, but you are definitely matching their hair. Right. And, and not necessarily in all the hairstyles, not all the hairstyles, but some of them. And then mm. other ones, as they jump periods, you're coming up with new styles within that period. It doesn't mean you're matching. Not everything is pulled from, because people in real life do not change their hair this much. In film, they do. No. Not in real life, no. Yeah. And I, I think that people kind of get to a certain age too, and they kind of stick with something for quite a while. <laughs> Whatever works. They're like, this works for me. I'm going to stick with it for like 20 years. <laughs> or when they felt, I'm pretty convinced it's when people feel that they look their best. Yeah. You know, like when I was a little girl and I used to take the bus, I used to see these old people and they'd have like finger waves in their hair. But finger waves, it's like 50, 60 years before. And I realized that it's not that they didn't move on time. It just may be that when their hair was in finger waves when they were young, that's when they felt they looked their best. Yeah. And they still see themselves in that way. Yeah. So. Starting to understand it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'd be like, wow, that happened 60 years or 80 years before, but no, they still have it. Yeah, I have had bangs like forever and recently tried to grow them out and was reminded once again of why I don't try and grow them <laughs> out and was just like, yeah, it's just going to be bangs forever. I'm just going to, that's it. Just deal with it. <laughs> exactly. Like, you know, where my hair does not like to do bangs, forget it. It's too textured. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. And what was the, what was the third film? Well. I'm pretty proud of American Hustle. Mm -hmm. I think the hardest thing on American Hustle, I mean, it was really fun to do. First off, it was really fun to do Amy's hair because I did 20 million styles on her. And one of the things I loved working about with Amy was that Amy has a real keen understanding of her hair and what hair really yeah. does. So if I said mm -hmm. to Amy, listen, we can't go backwards on your hair. When I say backwards, I mean like we can't curl it that much and then go back to that one and go back to that one within the same day because your hair won't do it. And that's hair does not do that. It says, mm. nope, I'm tired. Nope, done. And so it was really easy to have a conversation with Amy because she comes from the theater world. And in theater world, a lot mm. of actors for so many years before they get us, they do their own. So when I would talk to her like this, she understood. It wasn't like a foreign language. And so very quickly, we, we had a really good, uh, what's the word for it? Well, we, to we could communicate really well because we both knew what, what her hair was going to do. I think the hardest thing I've ever done was that comb over for Christian because it's not a prosthetic. It is an actual haircut. And yeah, I, I will just say, I'm, no. I'm so happy you did oh. that. I remember seeing it because big Christian Bale fan, like have been watching him forever. And then just to visually see him like that, I was like, oh, fuck, this is awesome. <laughs> so I'm so glad you guys went. For well, it. you know, it's so funny because it's not easy, you know, working with David and it's he doesn't have an actual conversation. He's all mm. over the place. There's a person, a director. And I wasn't, at one point I wasn't, I, I said to David, are you sure you want this comb over before we even cut it? Right. And I had mm. already like, technically I might never have done anything, but I'm, I did 
you know, I went back and I had a bunch of research about this. It's not like I just did it, but I did it on a mannequin and very quickly mm. realized that you could never achieve anything like that on a mannequin because it's punched in hair and mm. there's no way you can figure it out. And the only way to figure it out is actually on somebody and there's no going back. So it's not like you're mm. doing that without nerves and and then we were going to shoot it like two days later. And what were you going to do if it didn't work out? I mean, there was a lot of pressure to it. Fortunately, the gods were with me. And the only people in the trailer were me and Christian for two days. And yeah. because I've learned sometimes you just need to constant, you just, you need concentration and you don't want anyone else in that room and you want to focus. And, mm. and I'd already done it and I showed Christian all kinds of things. And I had already done something on Foxcatcher that we did on another actor. And I explained everything to Christian. Like, Christian, the reason why it didn't work in your last movie when you had whoever did that job on The Crown mm. is because it wasn't done. Because hair does not grow like that. So it doesn't look real. So mm. we slowly did it over two days. And then it was in the script that it was going to open up. You know, like he was going to like, I, I just asked David, I go, well, what does that mean? It's going to open up like, like Bradley Cooper's character was going to put his hands through it. It's going to open up the comb over. And you know how we are. We have to have a backstory. So, so I said to David, why, why does it open up? Does the wind blow? What happens? Like, well, why? Like, what are you, what are you going to do? Like nothing's in the script. Mm. So when he opened up, it was very complicated to cut that. Like you couldn't really make it like thinner. Like you think you can. Even if you're, mm. however, you're shaving it and doing it really slow, it took two days to do that. You, you can't. It has to do with the way the mm. hair grows. You can't have that much hair per square inch to make something look thinner. It has to be from the root to make it look thinner. I mean, yeah. you can punch that. You can punch it. Or you can, you can punch it into ball cap, but you can't do it on someone's real thing. And you have to understand how hair grows. So at one point when they weren't looking, I had to go back and explain myself because when they were not looking and they were shooting something else, I got this crazy idea. I sent someone back to the trailer because I was thinking, okay, we're going to open this up. Go back to the trailer and go get me some crepe wool. I'm thinking I'm still designing this, right? So we had done the whole thing. Mm -hmm. You know, we've, we've already figured out the whole thing with the comb over and everything. And then one of my girls went back to the trailer for me. And when they weren't looking, I stuffed it in there and I just sat and looked at it. And you were never going to tell it was in there. And it wasn't the day it was going to open up. I was still working out the creative ideas. And then yeah. after I realized, after I sat and even Christian didn't know, I didn't say one word. I just did it. And the next day I walked in and I said, okay, I've got a plan. But now we got to get David onto the same page because, you know, he's the director. He's got to agree to it. And then what happened mm. was, is they, they actually rewrote the whole opening. And then I thought Christian was watching me every day do it anyway, because this year is naturally wavy. So all that stuff mm. is all blown dry. And then you get it re-wet. And I came up with a whole backstory. And that's how he, David rewrote the whole opening. And Christian only did half of it because the rest of it was done by me. And by the time you did his hair on that particular day, when we shot it, I asked makeup because makeup would put like, you know, foundation on his scalp. And I said, yeah. today, if you don't mind, instead of him going from my chair halfway done, come and just put that on his head because I'm going to finish mm -hmm. the whole thing. And why he goes to makeup, I'm going to keep it where it's cooking. I call it cooking. It's got a simmer. Mm -hmm. And that way, once we opened it and Amy opened it over and over and over on camera, it would just plop right back in. It was done. Boom, 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 really fast. And the hair just went and did it. Yeah, because yeah, I, I, I simmered it. <laughs> it's easy to talk about hair like you're cooking. Just simmer it and it's going to yeah. all work. You know, mold it, sculpt it, simmer it, simmer it for a little bit and it's going to stay. And then when you open it, it, it will work over and over and over. And that's how we did it. That's awesome. So good that he uh, likes to lean into that stuff as well. Like to actually have that done to him. Oh, that. Oh, my God. In real life, he looks so crazy. You wouldn't believe it. Like. <laughs> like to make a comb over, like if the comb, the comb over part was like down to his shoulders and then oh, he boy. wore a hat. It's because of him. My best actors are the ones in the end that take my suggestions because they're really into their characters. Because at the end of the day, all we're going to do is cut it off and it'll grow back. 
And that, you know, that's what we did. But really and truly, I've been very fortunate. And he is a great actor. I mean, he's totally into like prosthetics and just all kinds of crazy stuff to get into that character. And it's really because he had to agree to it. And he, he's the one who agreed. Yeah. When I said to him before we even started the comb over, listen, I think David doesn't want this comb over. He said to me, oh, no, 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 no. There's no way. I just gained 30 pounds and we're doing that comb over. I said, are you sure? <laughs> he said, yes, we're doing that comb over no matter what. So he's the one. And then when I did, when I explained about the crepe wool and the backstory and who I thought that character was, I said, hey. listen, the character is a shyster. You know, he's a shyster. And mm. that's who that character is. He would have completely in his career walked into a novel shop and looked at other characters for other reasons. It would have just made total sense of who this guy is. And yeah. he said to me, how are you going to keep that on my head? And I, I said to him, what do you mean? We're going we're gonna to just use spirit gum. That's it. You just, just, it's been around for 150 years or even more. The mum, they might have even used it to make mummies of some sort. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. And He's like, okay. I said, we're going to glue it on your head. That's it. The crepe wall. That's it. And you're going to, that's how we're going to do it. Something very, that makes sense to the story. You have to have a backstory to, to make it seem real on camera. It's awesome. It's so fun to kind of get into those conversations and all that type of stuff with, with your actors. And then when they really love to lean into it, it's just. Oh, it's really Christian so who talked David into it. That's so cool. So coming up through like, I guess when you were starting, whether it was in the salon or whether it was at beauty school or learning to make wigs, was there ever a piece of advice that has kind of been given to you that has stuck with you all this time? Yeah. Hazel said something to me that I, I do repeat. <laughs> I do yeah. repeat it. Yes. I've never forgotten it from the moment she told me this. She said to me, Catherine, I just want you to remember one thing. Just remember this. One day you're in the trailer. And the next day you're in the tent and don't forget it. And I think that was such amazing advice and understanding of this business. And basically, basically it sums it up that no matter what we do, every project is a new project. And some projects we win awards, some we don't. You might deserve it. You might not. But the reality is, is you cannot have a big ego. You're only as good as the last 10 seconds on your movie. And there's nothing wrong with doing background. There's nothing wrong with being in the trailer and we go back and forth and it's kind of saying, keep your ego in check. And I wish more people would do that. Yeah. I mean, everybody's doing the work to get the same outcome. Like it's all going on camera and it all needs to be done to make the whole thing work. Like one section doesn't do it and everything falls apart. So everyone is so important to make it all happen. Yes. And, even if you do win an award, it's not an award. I mean, I, I never even set out to do anything like that. I just really love to create characters. I think it's a bit dangerous if you were to be setting out to. But there are people <laughs> who do. And, but really, it's just, just like do like your best work, you know, really keeping people's egos out of it and just focusing on that script and just do your best work. Yeah. And the universe brings you something else. And, you know, even to this day, like sometimes I really love just doing the background because you can just create all this really great hair and you're mm. not under any pressure. You're not running a department. You're just creating mm. that hair. And that's a whole different yeah. mindset. And mm. you just make it and you're making each of those people look their best for that period or whatever you're doing. And yeah, it's great. I love what we do. What do you, what do you find most rewarding about our line of work? Creating characters. Yeah. I don't know. I love it. And coming up, I mean, like, I mean, that was all part of like American hustle, like coming up with that crazy backstory because really and truly the things that make me laugh, like my sense of humor is all the crazy stuff that real people do and real people do crazy stuff. Well, yeah. I mean, you can just be standing in the um, line at the supermarket and be standing behind someone going, what is happening? It's, it's, <laughs> it's, like, what have they done? It's like trying to work out Trump's here. You're just like, what is, what is going on here? Exactly. And as a matter of fact, on American Hustle, they did, before I got, they, they, they did do some photoshops before I had the job and the, the shape of that mm. hair was Trump. And I'm, and I was really like secretly, I was really against it because one, nobody ever looked like that. That's like an iconic hairdo. Mm. 
And it's almost like going, okay, everyone's going to look in that hairdo. No, Christian had to look like what he had to look like in the 70s. Like his version of, yeah. Yes, not you take a hairdo like Trump and go stick it on his head. And I was like, oh, God, no. (laughs) And so what do you find most challenging in our our line of work? Um, I think running the department and dealing with, (laughs) lately, Um, a lot of human resources within people. Mm -hmm, I think that in the United States, at least it's different than like you're from Australia, right? New Zealand Zealand, and, or people in London in, in, in those countries, there is a system to how we get to where we get to within our business. Mm. And in, in the U S there's no system. And because there's no Mm. system, it makes trying to work in a group effort very difficult. And, I think that's the most challenging besides all the what's happened in the last five years within the world between COVID, between just everything and not having a system within our job category. There is no system here. And you mean like having trainees and juniors and people working their way up and learning and working under people and being educated? Yes, I think. Yes, I think. I couldn't agree yes, more. <laughs> I think that not having, you know, like in London, like the first job that you would do, you'd, you'd order supplies. You and then mm. you work up, and then you go to your second job, and then you go to the third job, and then you make the system. And if you don't fit within that system, you don't work. So while you're in that system, like in Europe and all over the world except the United States, you see mm. the positions within that system, and you see how it works and you can try to achieve the next step. But here there is no system. And because of it, it creates a tremendous amount of chaos. Yeah. And you know, what is the Mm -hmm. first thing as a department head I look for in someone? And it took me years to Mm -hmm. figure that out because I, it took me years. And one of the things that I realized, especially amongst hair people who are creatives, but not necessarily organized people. And what does that word mean? Mm. Is that I am, that's my first question. I ask, I just want to know when you talk about yourself and you think about yourself, do you feel like you're an organized person? Mm. And every department head runs their department differently. And if I'm getting someone who is not an organized person and they're working one foot for me, it is more chaos than you could possibly imagine. There's so much organizational stuff to be able to move quickly, to also mm. be proficient and get everything up on camera, ordering stuff. And there's just no routine here in the United States. And that's the biggest problem. Yeah, it's having initiative, thinking forward about what's coming up next. It's, uh, yeah. I, I, so do you feel naturally that you are an organized person? I think that I trained myself to be extremely organized. Yeah. I don't know if I originally started that, but with the more and more and more responsibility and to take away mm. some of the stress of all the responsibility, I realized yeah. that the only way to achieve that is to be crazy organized and simple. That old saying, keep it simple, stupid, really applies in yeah. how you do all the work and trying to get people to, I don't know, trying to get people to do their job is very challenging. And one of the reasons why is I think in Europe, it's not about getting into the union and it never was really about with me either. It was really that I wanted to get more qualified first. My family are teachers and of hair besides the salon, besides intercoiffure. And they were always about, they taught so much and it was really about Mm. education and it still is like that's the whole theory behind intercultural salons. It's about educating constantly, and the rest yeah. will come. The rest just comes. Because going back to just trying to get people to do their job, I think too, it just so simply could be said that they don't actually understand what their role is. That is true. To be able to do it, and also if you're in a position like in Europe, right, and you're in hair and makeup you see the different levels that you're going to climb to get to that eventually your dream, if that's what you choose to do, to be the department head. Not everybody chooses to do that, but you still have to fit within that system. Difficult. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think what I found quite interesting, because I'm always kind of trying to put it into people's minds that the end goal isn't always being a head of department because everyone is not built 
to be that. Not everyone is built to be a key. Not everyone is built for, you know, different positions. It's just you have different strengths and interests and some people don't want to be taking work home on the weekends and whatever, whatever. But when I did the, I did like a mentorship program through Mm -hmm. the podcast and had all the people that were applying ask, like answer a few questions. And one of them was, you know, where do you see yourself in five years? And I, I love the ambition that a very high percentage of them wanted to be running departments, but I was also incredibly concerned that they didn't really, I don't think they were at a position where they didn't understand what that meant. Exactly. So it's just like, it's not, I don't think that has to be the goal. I like just (laughs) focus on being, you know, the best that you can be in your line of work and with your craft and stop maybe just trying to be the boss because it's not necessarily (laughs) everything you dreamed it would be. (laughs) It's like they don't really know the job. Like, yeah. Okay, Catherine. So if I had you in the trailer, you're set up at your station, you've got all your bits and pieces. If I was to come in and take away like one tool or product from you, what would stress you out? Like, what do you love to work with every day that you wouldn't want to be without? I can't be without my, even though sometimes I don't even use brushes, but I need my round brushes. (laughs) Yeah. I need my blow dryer. Do you have a favorite blow dryer? You know, I just switched to one of the, um, I'm still testing to see if I like like one of the, the new dryers. No, I'm kind of old fashioned. Just it just depends on what kind of hair I'm working with. If I want an anonized dryer or if I want a normal dryer, because it just depends. Because that's helpful. If someone's got really textured hair, I want to anonize. If they don't have textured hair, I do not want an anonized dryer because it flattens the hair and I need body in the hair. Um, so I use two different kinds of dryers, and then um, I like my flat iron. I can't think of the name of it. It's from Korea. I love that flat iron. And then I got a little one that they don't make anymore that makes me want to cry that I can't get another one. I'm like, don't touch my, don't touch my. <laughs> I hate that. I'm just like, I, I said on my last job, I think the hairspray that I use, if they stop making it, I'll retire. I hate hairspray, <laughs> but you have to use it. And the only mm. one that mm. I do use and I cannot live without, I can't stand the smell of any of them. They all stink. Yeah. Um, the only one I use is Shaper Plus, and they did stop making it at one point. They did? They did, and they repackaged mm. it, and I actually emailed them and said, why would you take a formula that is so perfect? I told them, I'm in the film business. It's your number one seller. It was on the, it was on the Wall Street Journal back in the 80s. They even have, like, YouTube yeah. videos on that where they would, like, you know, blow dry the hair into a sculpture thing, and then you could just comb it out. I go, why would you, why would you redo that? Like... And they, and they actually, they put it back. Yeah. Every time I smell that, it takes me back to my salon. I can't stand the smell, but it's the only one that I've ever found that if I have to go back and forth on people, you know, with different periods and stuff, I can comb right through it and, and, and move right into the next thing. Um, and what one person would you like to hear on the podcast? Goodness. Um, I don't know. I think I've heard so many, (laughs) um, maybe somebody new and there's a lot of people in Europe that, you know, we're just mm-hmm. beginning to know, like, in the academy, because mm-hmm. we just don't know of their work, and they've already been doing a body of work. And that would be really interesting to hear how they got into the business. Someone that's not necessarily from the United States would be great. Yeah, I try and I do try and mix it up a bit. Yeah, I saw that. I saw that. It's very interesting to hear people's stories, I think. Yeah, it's awesome. Well, thank you for sharing yours today, Catherine. It's been awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much. Okay, Last Looks crew, thanks for listening. And remember, if you love it, share it. A quick scroll down and you'll find our show notes. Or maybe you'd like to give your support and leave a five-star review. Go on, I know you want to. Search The Last Looks podcast on Instagram, Facebook, or TikTok, whichever one tickles your fancy. And a massive shout out to the husband, Brett Stanley. Without his patience and tech support, this whole podcast situation simply does not happen and cheers to Liliana Rose for her fabulous voice acting talents okay last looks crew that's a wrap for me I don't need to be told twice to get out of here so bye I'll catch you on the flip side that's a wrap